Welcome to the 401 Access Denied podcast. My name is Joseph Carson, Chief Security Scientist at Thycotic and co-host of the show. This podcast is all about making cybersecurity easy, usable, and fun. Come back every two weeks to listen in and learn about what's the latest news, or even submit your own questions via the community. Welcome, Joe, back again. Uh, today, we're going to be talking about passwords and authentication uh, and authorization. Absolutely. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm really, this is one of my probably most passionate areas. It's, it's been one of my pain points for many, many years. And it's something that, you know, I've been researching a lot on. I've been looking into different ways and technologies and innovations to how to really, you know, reduce the pain just that little bit further. Uh, because passwords today, uh, while it is our, you know, way to access things, but it's also one of the most challenging and painful things. And that's actually probably for most people is probably the one of the biggest things for cyber fatigue uh, in many employees and people around the world. Yeah, I agree. And, and passwords is one of those things that I'm super passionate about. Um, <clears throat> and I think probably a great place to start would really just be like, what are we talking about? Like, what, what do we mean by passwords and, and what does that encompass? Absolutely. I mean, one of the things I always look at, I'm a person, you know, I'm very embedded in the digital world and I always look at things digitally. But for me, one of my things, you know, through my education past, the way I've always looked at things is to try and see it. What does that look like in the physical world? Mm -hmm. And that's why when you go to events, that's where you see people passionate about things like lockpicking, because lockpicking is really that essential. Once you see it in a physical sense, it helps you adopt that to understand it better in the digital world. So passwords, I mean, passwords have been around for centuries. They're nothing new. Um, in the past, they used to be called passcodes or passwords or passphrases. They were also called watchwords, um, you know, used with, you know, abracadabra, you know, open sesame. All of those famous things you see in the movies and, you know, all came through history because they were really to verify and authenticate people who should be there. It was to open doors. It was to gain access to things like vaults. So in a physical world, I'm always looking into that in order to better understand it. And then I try to convert that into the digital sense. And if we get into the digital scenario, since passwords have been around for a long time, they're very cost effective, they're very cheap. Um, the problem is, is always that exchange, is, is exchanging passwords, make sure only the person and the system are actually knowledgeable of it. But passwords in a digital sense have been around since around, I think it was the 1960s. And it came really from um, even the late 60s, early 70s where Robert Morris kind of was looking at how to make sure that pe multiple people could use a Unix operating system. And this is really then, therefore, that it wasn't just you type in a username and you get access, that you wanted to have that shared system and shared experience within these mainframes, and therefore introduced back in the Unix in the first generations of digital passwords. And for many years, and even still today, the password is the difference between a cyber criminal and attacker gaining access to sensitive data in a digital sense. And we really haven't come a long way. A lot of the best practices really haven't evolved that much. And we really get into a point where there's been a lot of discussions about the future passwords, where they're going. Um, but there has been a major difference since around, I think, the late 90s, early 2000s, because during that time from the 60s and 70s till the early 2000s, most of us really only had one password to remember. There was just one. But in the last 20 years with social media and internet services, the acceleration of those accounts, we've actually went for 
where it was the first 10 years up until about 2010, but maybe we had to have five to remember. But then the internet boom, social media, um, new internet services means the average person has somewhere between 30 and upwards of 100 different passwords they need to remember. And this is what's accelerated the pain. Yeah, definitely. And I think talking about a little bit about like the history and where things are going, I think one of the things that's really um, so much is based on that original like 80s, 90s Unix system or Mm -hmm. 60s, like eight characters, this and this. So many best practices started there. And then we sort of didn't really evolve in thinking about thinking about passwords and and their length and how that actually is more important than say, you know, their complexity um, and things like that. I think there's a lot that's sort of locked up in this historical, where did passwords come from and how did we get to where we are? Absolutely. Because the the concept of passwords was, is that they looked at best practices from individually into this is the best practices for a password. Right. But they didn't really think of it as a collective as that you've got like, you know, tens of 50, 100 passwords you need to remember. And that's where best practices really need to evolve is how to remember the mass, how to right. remember the, the collection. And this is really what the challenge has become. Um, where, you know, really the, probably the worst practice and bad hygiene that people have is reusing passwords. The reusing a password is probably what most people causes, you know, them to become victims of cybercrime. Right. That and... Um... I know people and I used to have to, uh, you know, as someone who is responsible for security, I would have to remind people not to do this, which was patterns, right? Like, oh, my pass, every so often I have to change my password. So it'll be fall 2019, then it'll be spring 20, you know, whatever. And they would just sort of, and so if you figured out what the pattern was, you sort of forever had access to their account. (laughs) Uh, Absolutely. And not even, you know, it's even these small variations. There's so many password cracking tools out there. Right. As long as you've got one example on the past of a a used password, Mm -hmm. what you can do is based on the knowledge of, you know, social data or personal information that's available publicly. um, I always, you know, even what was crazy the last couple of years is you get into, used to be the security questions. Uh, but, you know, that was how you reset a passwords. Ooh, Toyota. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. No, it's absolutely. Kimmy, what was your first dog? What was your pet name? What's your favorite book? What's your mother's? All these things are. And, and, and then what became the craze was, is that then the surveys came. <laughs> and all the surveys were, what was your first concert? What was your first car? All of the right. things related to the security career. And you're simply just to participate in a survey, you're giving up all the answers to security questions. Right. And that's the most ridiculous thing that I've ever seen. I mean, one of the guys, uh, Rick Ferguson, I always loved his comment, is that you don't always have to be honest when you're answering those security oh, questions. Yeah, no, mine are totally... Yeah, mine are totally non sequitur. What's your favorite, you know, dog, the New York Rangers? You know, it's like, not that I use that because everybody knows I'm a Rangers fan, but, you know, that type of thing, just try to make it as non sequitur as possible and then uh, use, um, you know, a, a secrets manager to keep track of what answer did I give on that particular place if I had to give one. Absolutely. And in addition to that, one of the things that I mean, you have to remember, you know, not only the history and, and some misunderstandings as well as, some people say use, for example, passphrases instead of passwords. Mm-hmm. That's incorrect uh, terminology because ultimately the password is the top level entity. And actually above a password is what's known as a secret. And a passphrase and a PIN and a passcode, all of those are variations of methods of creating passwords. Um, so that's, it's, it's what we're teaching them to do is make a better password. 
And that's what the actual usage in terminology of passphrase comes from, which really means is you want to get the password as long as possible. So those are techniques of creating them. Um, and then also there's a lot of misunderstandings as well as we have to make sure that one is usernames is really the identifier. That's where you get into. And then it's the password, which is really the, let's say, authentication or the verifier portion. So the heart of the system really knows that you really are who you say you are. And the problem that we've got today is that anyone who's created a login system, and out of those 30 to 100 that we all have to, to remember, in my case, it's ridiculous. I've got well over 500 at this point because of you know penetration testing and ethical hacking. You had to have different identities and personas. But with, with that, we look at not all systems have created them equally. There's mm -hmm. been no you can have you know simple things where it accepts anywhere between four to eight characters. You can have systems that accept up to 64. I think the maximum is somewhere around, I think it's 127 is the maximum size of password you can create in a Windows system. Mm. And this really gets into that, yes, all systems have these various different complexities, sizes, lengths. Some require only numbers. Some require you know characters. Some require lowercase only. And that problem is, is that that means that we get into these situations where whatever the system that takes the least type of security controls sometimes becomes the baseline of all our other passwords, mm -hmm. which is a really bad practice as well because there's so many tools out there to guess uh, and uh, crack those passwords. I also think, though, that when you start adding all those additional constraints on, it's actually limiting the space in some ways, right? Like, oh, you can't have this, you can't have that. You Like, you can't have two letters that are the same in a row, and it, it, you know, it doesn't matter how, like, there's a point at which it, some of those constraints are just making it that much harder to create a password, remember a password, and then also eliminate some of the space. Yeah, complexity doesn't work. Right. Um, and frequent rotation doesn't work, especially for human interactive right. uh, types of passwords. Um, that just forces people to use simple, common, easy to remember, easy to guess passwords. Or write so them you down. Have to look, yeah, or write them <laughs> down. And in some, in some cases, writing them down is not a bad thing as long as they store them in a secure location. Right. Um, you know, for people at home, writing them down in a notebook and keeping them in a locked drawer is perfectly okay. Um, it comes into why I always say is that, you know, choosing the right solution method is always about, you know, what you're protecting and where the access of that protection, you know, starts and ends. It's all about what you're trying to protect with the security control. And this is, you know, so some cases write them down, you know, for people who, you know, live alone um, and put them in a locked drawer is perfectly okay. If you're in a shared area and you've got people that might have access to that, then that's probably not a good thing. You may want to then, for individuals at home, elevate into a password manager um, and use something that you know allows you to then create all of those passwords, um, let's say using system generated, because the worst thing that I ever see is we should never let humans create internet account passwords. This gets into the problem, because when you let humans create them, we create the easiest choice possible that's easy to remember, remember and sometimes small variations of the previous ones. So where humans are allowed to create passwords is somewhat, you know, it, it kind of inheriting into the problem as well. So let's, let's talk about password managers a little bit. I'm, I'm curious, um, you know, what are some of the key features you would say you would look for in a, in a password manager? In a password manager, I mean, some of the key features is really that central vault about being able to make sure that you have them all locked. Um, so sometimes, you know, keeping them in the operating system, keeping them in the browser, I, that means that once you gain access to the system, you've got access to all the passwords. So sometimes it's not a good approach. It might be okay for people who, you know, individuals and consumers at home. 
but it means is that you're locking all of your accounts equally, meaning that your bank, your you know your Twitter account, your Facebook, and all of those social media accounts is equal to all of accounts. So it means is that you want to also make sure you you can create different types of security controls for all of those, and putting them into much more of a focused, dedicated password manager. It really allows you to get that centralized vault. It allows you to auto-populate so you don't have to type them in. So you have free, you know, these free auto-fill uh, forms as well. You want to make, be able to share them with people um, you know, so that they have access for a period of time. Maybe you're on vacation, maybe you're away, maybe you want somebody else to access an account for you. Um, making the ability to assist and generate passwords, giving you known integration with vulnerabilities, for example, where passwords are being compromised, therefore you might change them, or giving you also password strength and password age. And integration into things like two-factor, multi-factor authentication is also important. Uh, but as we kind of grow those number of passwords that we put in, uh, reporting and auditing is also increasingly becoming more important as well. Um, and they become multifunctional as well. You can start putting in identity information or connection mm-hmm. information, or you can start organizing them. You can put more information into those vaults. So. Um, a lot of those features are really some about the basic and then the ability to share them between multiple devices becomes important as well as we have. Yeah. The multi-device one, I think is one in this day and age is one of the more important ones. Whereas in the past, right. If you had, you know, encrypted file or whatever, it was just local. That was probably fine to a point, but now there's so many different devices. I also think, um, one of the features that it's definitely on the more advanced side, but that um, that I'd like to look for is, can it actually automatically rotate passwords for me pretty easily and stuff like that and manage that for me? So I, again, I just don't, you know, I don't have to worry about it too much. Absolutely. Um, in that case, what you're really moving into is more like kind of the kind of small business, uh, medium business, or even large business side of things. You, what you're really thinking about is getting into privilege access management, mm-hmm. because that's what, your password managers are good for consumers and good for individuals. But when you get into for businesses, you need to move beyond password managers because password manager, what you're really doing is you're still delegating accountability and responsibility to the employee. And with privilege access management, what you're doing is you're taking that centrally. So it means you're getting consistent security. You're getting uh, more accountability between the auditability as well. You're also getting scalability, integration into enterprise type tools, whether it being Active Directory or Seams or vulnerability scanners and so forth. And it also gives you, in many cases, APIs that allows that more automation. So yes, absolutely, as you get into more of the business side, privilege access management gives you much more enterprise-ready ability to do mm-hmm. rotate passwords to the point where my goal is always to get to the disclosure rate of passwords to be as minimal as possible, because your disclosure rate um, also means that who has access to what. And you want to keep that as minimal because that reduces the risk ultimately of not just external types of threats, but also inter- insider abuse as well. Right. And I think um, raises an interesting point when you talk about access controls and, and the notion of least privilege, right? Like there's the making sure that people who are admins should have admin access or, and, and so on and so forth. That's sort of that escalation. But there's also the how much should you have if you don't have a use on that system, maybe you don't have an account on that system. I think that's one of the ones that people frequently overlook when they think about least privilege. Is Absolutely. Least privilege for me is one of the areas that, you know, I always look back, you know, I was a uh, data center domain administrator you know, 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. This was really where I kind of moved into really uh, focusing on password management because as a domain administrator, I was responsible for 100,000 servers. And I had one account that had access to everything across multiple companies. Right. Um, and I remember going into the data center cages 
And I had to like go through these security gates with people who were armed guards and you know, had to go through all these IDs. And I had to get the key and put a big furry coat on and earmuffs in these <laughs> cold data centers. And I remember, you know, I could have to get into the cage, you'd be locked in the cage. And of course, uh, you'd be you know, that was the only cage you're allowed in during that time. And everything was in the physical sense, completely segregated, isolated, separated. Right. But I could go home and get on my laptop, open up a VPN connection <laughs> and access whatever I wanted. <laughs> So it, it, what happened was at that time, it really made me realize that I was that stopgap between, you know, compromise and security. And it made me realize that I should never have that access all the time, every day, every time I access the system. And it made me realize that we do need to get to where no one's a domain administrator. No one's a local administrator. What we have is we operate in standard accounts. Mm-hmm. And even I do this practice at home. I operate in a standard account, and anytime I need to elevate, I actually have to give the right credentials in order to gain that elevated access. And this means that it should be no domain administrators. We should be elevation on demand. Right. And that's what means that we get into that least privilege approach, meaning that we only have access to that system or that application when there's an authorized business reason justification to do so. And that reduces abuse and it reduces the ability that attackers elevating and abusing accounts more and more. And least purpose is really the kind of gold standard what we really need to get to. Right. And I think they also reduce just um, like human error. Um, I remember my first lesson in why uh, having the, all the users on their Linux systems, all the developers were admins on their boxes. Um, and that was the account that they you know frequently used. And when uh, one of our uh, users uh, was reformatting his machine, uh, he forgot to unmount something and started reformatting our entire repository. And it was like, whoa. So, you know, things like that, you realize, well, you know, that, we, you know, you learn the hard way sometimes. Um, Absolutely. About- <laughs> so I, I've, got, I've, got, I've got so many war stories of those scenarios over the years. I mean, I mean I've seen, uh, you probably remember tools like uh, uh, Rapid Deploy, Deployment Solution, or Ghosting. You probably remember Ghosting. So those were some of the solutions I was responsible for. And I used to take, I used to run the support and services for those products. And I've had so many, you know, I remember administrators dragging and dropping uh, an image file and missing the folder because of the, the, the latency <laughs> rate between the interface and the target. And they dropped it onto basically all computers. And within seconds, Pixie boot, all you know, thousands of machines being re-imaged at once. And those scenarios, it's like when you think about it, that's where that's where privilege access and least privilege prevents you from doing those things. Right. And that's what you know, that's why it's came around is that you know to prevent those, you know, accidental mistakes as well. Yeah, exactly. I mean that I have a similar story with um my first job back in the 90s when web servers back then people would run web servers as root that was mm-hmm. common you know that was a, a practice right because it needed to run on privileged ports and whatever and so uh, you needed to install our software as root and sometimes really bad things would happen if you didn't answer the the installation uh, the software that I had written which was the install software if you didn't answer those questions <laughs> right some really bad things would happen <laughs> That's um, always always important. So one of the things that yeah. you know, there's some innovations and stuff, things that's been happening, and there's some prioritization. Um, so in the industry, we've seen, of course, you know, a large adoption of things like single sign-on. And the probably the biggest mistake that many companies make is they see single sign-on as a security solution, but it's not. Right. It does help reduce cyber fatigue. It helps people have to remember less passwords, and it helps provide them one account that allows them log into multiple services. But it's not security. 
it's going back to that similar password manager side of things. It's giving you one key to many doors and many rooms. Um, it means that you know when you do single sign-on, it's important that you enhance the security at the same time. You complement it with additional security controls, especially if you're getting into single sign-on. Leverages things like you know biometrics. Um, you want to make sure you you additionally add things like two-factor, multi-factor authentication at a minimum. So single sign-on, that's some of the approaches that people mistake and they see as a security uh, ability. But in fact, what it's really doing, it is reducing cyber fatigue, it's reducing the amount of passwords a person has to remember and has to maintain and enter. But at the same time, it's it's one bigger door to many different services that that person has access to. And therefore, it means that you have to be more cautious about things like auditing uh, and those things. So it's important to look at single sign-on as a definitely it is something that organizations should do but they shouldn't see it as a security kind of measure. I agree. I think it's mostly a convenience, you know, convenience. Another thing, the one, the one security benefit I think um, we see, we get out of our SSO system is that mm -hmm. when we terminate an employee, their access is at that point terminated for 90% of our systems that we can connect to that SSO. Um, so absolutely. It helps so with the, the provisioning, onboarding and deprovisioning. Right. Absolutely. But that's about it. Right. Becomes Exactly. And that, but that's where it sort of begins and ends. Um, and then even then SSO, um, and this is the way, you know, Cyberry has implemented right now. It's one of those things we want to move more on is um, towards uh, skim where we can do the auto provisioning and deprovisioning. There's plenty of systems we that support SSO, but also allow the user to continue to log in with the username and password. And so even after they get deprovisioned from our SSO, you know, our identity provider, they're, theoretically still have access to that account if they remember the username and password. Yeah, so no, I, think one those... I, think, I think that's important as well is that, you know, especially as people change rules in organizations that those gives you the automation to make sure that what happened, what used to happen is, is you used to clone accounts for people, you know, or <laughs> add them to the same group that people's been in for years. Right. And heard this overly amount of access and privileges rather than building it up to what their job is specifically for. And right. that's just really important. That's where identity access management and skin really allows you to make sure that you're provisioning for this for the job that they're doing, not cloning existing people's access and giving it to a new person. Right. Uh, that really helps that, especially as as that person moves through the organization over years, it makes sure that they have the minimum um, access, but not overly privileged as well. Yeah, definitely the uh, the removing access. I can't remember all the systems where I would just accumulate more and more access. Nobody ever took anything away. They just kept on giving you more. Um, well, if we trusted you back then, we, why wouldn't we continue yeah. to trust you? Yeah, um, absolutely. So you, you sort of touched on, I'm sorry. It, yeah, there's probably biometrics as well. I touched a bit on biometrics there. Is, uh, yeah. And this is a pet peeve of mine. Is, <laughs> is that, and I've seen, I've actually seen it more and more even recently. It's like, you know, the end of passwords. Um, you know, biometrics will replace passwords. And we've heard it many times over and over, you know, from different people, you know, different organizations have said the end of passwords is near biometrics will replace them. And this is really gets into is that we, this is actually a myth because biometrics do not replace passwords. Right. And that's fundamentally, they're, they're, they're not secrets. The fundamental of a password is the definition of, it's a secret by the utmost definition. It's a memorized secret. Biometrics, they're not secrets. They're something that you, you are and have, fingerprints, your facial scan, whatever it might be. What biometrics do replace is they replace usernames. And they make a stronger, better, harder to replicate username, which is good. So I do see biometrics replacing usernames. They don't replace passwords. That means that, yes, with a stronger username, 
you can complement it with additional security controls, whether being simply a pin, much less to remember, but complementing that harder to replicate, harder to clone biometric, absolutely. And then you get into things like push notification, push authentication, uh, multi-factor authentication, and privilege access. Um, all of those things should be combined. And of course, depending on the risk, the more security controls you require. Right. And that's ultimately what you get into. So biometrics do have a place, but it, it's replacing the username, not the password. Oh, no. Yeah, and I agree. I think of uh, the biometrics as being a secret handshake, right? Like, if you want to be part of a secret organization, there's sometimes a handshake or whatever, but it's not all that secret. And that's not enough. It just identifies you as being a member of the club. It's not really um, particularly secret. Um, and so are there any other myths that you sort of see in, in, in the space? And absolutely. Another one that's kind of, and I've overly commented on this all the time, and it's really is that, you know, moving to a passwordless world, you know, you know, and this really gets into me is that, you know, what it's also incorrectly assumed. We, we have people are assuming it wrongly. We're not moving to a passwordless world. It's not, that's not happening. Passwords are going to happen in the background. What we're doing is we're changing the interaction between the employee and the password. That's what's changing. So in definition, we're not moving to a passwordless world. What we're doing is we're less password interaction world, meaning that is biometrics will help with that augmentation, that complement, you know, complementary side of things where you're actually able to identify better. But what you're doing is you're having that person have to type it in less, meaning that the password still exists. It's been exchanged in a different method. It might be a certificate, it might be a key, it might be a token, it might be still a password or an application password that's being exchanged between the, the system for authentication. It still means that what happens is the user less enters it, but security and the management team and the IT team still need to manage that. It means is that you, the security is not being replaced, it's not being removed, it's just being changed the location of where we need to focus our time and manage it. So it's not in any case either reducing costs, it sometimes actually increases costs for those technologies, but it does mean that people need to enter it less, which means that there's less opportunities for cyber criminals to compromise them in that regard, in that interaction, meaning that things like you know, uh, phishing scams or enter your password into, you know, malicious websites. That becomes less and less because people have to enter them less. Uh, but it does mean into there's a lot of challenges because that means that the target where they're going to look at is actually in the system. They can access the system. They can then watch the passwords uh, being exchanged. They can, you know, do session hijacking just like past the hash happens. Um, and also gets into the point where then migration recovery becomes a much more problem for employees in order to get new devices or to move to new operating systems and so forth or upgrade or replace devices. So in those cases, yes, it's less password interaction and the password really then changes and evolves to become a much more of a recovery key or password recovery approach. Um, so there's still something, you know, eventually if you're using your thumbprint to access a device and you injure your, your finger or thumb, then you can no longer access the device. So you have to have a mechanism of backup way of regaining access. And that's why Apple really still had the pin. Right. Is that, you know, if you restart the device, you have to re-enter the pin. Um, it's different elements of risk and different elements of security controls. And that will always be the case because you will still need that recovery ability. Yeah, and I think uh, one of the other ones you and I were talking a little bit about before this was um, 
speaking of recovery is how important your email account is to your identity and to act, you know, and protecting your access. Because if somebody gets access to your email, chances are they can use any number of forgot password capabilities to get into almost every account you've ever created. Absolutely. Email today is, is your digital identity to be honest. Right. Uh, it is, you know, 20 years ago, it was just a simple messaging exchange. It was a post-it note to your colleague to, to give them, you know, be here, meet you for lunch, need to do right. this task. Today, email is replaced. It's, it's your digital identity. It means that it's all your history about your browsing history, your advertisement preferences, who you've met, who you're going to meet. It's, you know, your location information. It's your sense of document access, your photographs. And in many cases, it's all the internet services that you ever signed up for because they all want your email address and they will send you a thank you. Mm -hmm. um, here's your password. Um, and here's your password recovery. Here's the link to reactivate. And it means that, you know, any type of attacker that gets access to email actually really gets to understand you much more personally than sometimes you might even know yourself. Right. So they're able to understand your personal identity um, through your email access. And then sometimes if you're not really good at managing and you don't use a password manager or privilege access management, it means that attacker can simply then go and abuse your password resets and be able to gain access to any account that you use your email as a medium of communication for password resets. Right. And they can potentially lock you out of your own email account, which <laughs> <laughs> they, they will do eventually, exactly. <laughs> uh, which means it makes it harder for you to recover. Um, you know, I've heard many you know, cases in the past where you know, digital identity theft, where, you know, in the financial side, it used to be credit card theft. Mm -hmm. And in the industry, they say, you know, it's easier to get your money back from the bank than it is to get your digital identity back. Um, so that's, you know, that shows you how significant it is. And it, I mean, we also look in the dark web as well. You look at the cost, credit card, you know, uh, cost of a you know, fake credit card online or a stolen credit card is cheaper than actually what an identity cost. Hmm. Uh, so it looks at the commodity and the value, and attackers do see your identity as a prime value. Interesting. Well, I think uh, I think this has been a really educational and, and, and enlightening uh, conversation. Uh, any final thoughts or, or last things to leave people with? You know, I mean, some of the best practices I have is really getting into, you know, people really need to understand that, you know, a password should never be the only security control that's protecting your sensitive information. Um, do use a long passphrase, you know, put spaces in between letters and stuff, use a space bar. Um, get into really the optimum length, you know, is really beyond 16, 18 characters. So the longer you make it, the more difficult it becomes to compromise. Um, you know, my best practice is, is, is human, my human creative is minimum 25 characters just because I know the hashing algorithms that's used to create and the strength and the, the, the challenges to, to break that. Also, log out of systems when you're not using them. Uh, don't stay logged in because that's another opportunity for an attacker to gain your hash. Uh, don't reuse passwords. Use a password manager. Um, rotate them. Um, using my time frame that I personally use is one, one every year. I rotate all my passwords yearly just because of the cryptic, you know, the cracking machines or cryptography ability is that, you know, the best computers out there could crack my password yearly. <laughs> so therefore, that's my time frame is knowing the cryptography algorithms. Um, Multi-factor authentication for all sensitive accounts where you really have information you don't want to give anyone access to. Good auditing um, of your activity. And really, you kind of don't be afraid to ask people for advice. Don't be afraid to go out there and ask people, you know, what's good practice? You know, can you help me? Look for cyber ambassadors and cyber mentors out there that we can really point you in the right direction. 
That's great advice. Actually, I'll take advantage of that right now. So for a long time, uh, for systems where I have to remember the password, I can't rely on a password manager for whatever reason. Uh, in the past, I've used full sentences of things like uh, one of my really long time ago passwords was some girls wander by mistake into the mess that scalpels make. Now, if you know Leonard Cohen, know that I'm a big Leonard Cohen fan, you might have been able to get there. But would you say having something so well formatted, even though it has spaces and punctuation and the rest of it, but the fact that it's a, a, a complete sentence and sort of follows English rules is weaker in some way or? I think it, it can be because if you get into what's called this natural process language uh, mm -hmm. ability in hacking and password cracking today, it's getting really good. Mm -hmm. It does make it longer, a process to do, uh, but using those natural uh, language processing rules in uh, hacking tools today, it can eventually get there. It really comes down to how well your system is and how, how many GPUs you have and how much hashes per second that you can actually crack. My recommendation is that you create a long sentence like that, and all you need to do is put one special character in any location of that. Just one, one special character will then uh, you know, make the, the problem of cracking it much more difficult. Right, one, one special character beyond the, one, the regular no. punctuation that would be found in there, yep. Correct, correct. Yep. Just simply changing it, you know, one letter to a number or one thing to, you know, uh, an ask, a non-asking character. Right. And it only needs to be one. Right, or exactly. Put a, put a random space in between where it may not be a space between words, but put a random space in will also create that complexity too. For me, it's that I'm a, a horrible speller. So typically those sentences had a misspelling in there and I didn't even realize it. <laughs> what's, what's the good thing? Exactly. <laughs> Well, thanks again for joining us. I, um, I, really, I always I enjoy our conversations. Absolutely. It's a pleasure being here. And, you know, ultimately out there, yes, passwords are not going away. Um, they will be around for a long time. Let's just use them wisely. Let's use mm -hmm. them to benefit. And, yes, we will get to the point where we, we will interact less with them, but they'll still exist. Great. Thanks. Learn how your team can get a free trial of Cybrary for Business by going to www.cybrary.it slash business. That's C-Y-B-R-A-R-Y dot I-T slash business.